0: they're just something that happens uh, at the beginning of a retreat, happens when we're new to meditation, and that we are above and beyond them. (laughs) But unfortunately, uh, these hindrances, which just in case you forget, are uh, desire, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. And these are Five states of mind, or actually we get variations on them, so there's like more than five states of mind. But these states of mind, when they're present, unrecognized, wreak complete havoc in our experience, uh, cause a lot of suffering, whether it's in formal meditation or whether it's in our daily lives. And when they're present and unrecognized, they hinder or obscure the mind from clear seeing. You know, we lose perspective, can't see things as they are, are confused, bewildered. Um, we find that when they're present and unrecognized, the mind doesn't stabilize, that it is all over the place. It, as we sit in meditation, a really um, common Way of noticing whether they're present or not is just to notice if you think there's something wrong with your practice. You know, and if you do, there's probably one of these hindrances present. And I am somewhat heartened by the fact that it, you know, they're they're common to all meditators, and they don't mean that we're, because they're present, we're a bad meditator. Um, That until we're completely awakened, we will be running into various forms of these hindrances going back to the time of the buddha mogalana who was one of the buddha's chief disciples before he was awakened the week he was practicing before complete liberation what was he struggling with sleepiness no it you know it happens And then there's another quite wonderful story about another person in the time of the Buddha. His name was Anuruddha. And he went to talk to one of his friends, who was Sariputta, who was another of the chief disciples of the Buddha. And he went to Sariputta and he said that he was able to have deep concentration, unshakable energy, and yet he was not fully realized and Saraputta, being a very good friend, pointed out to him that his proclamation of deep concentration was actually just conceit, his unshakeable energy was a form of restlessness, and the thought of not being fully realized was just worry. <laughs> and Aruddha listened to his friend, and as a result, became fully awakened. <laughs> And it's been my own personal experience that you know just as I understand these hindrances in one form, a new garden variety happens, and you know it's like you' bewildered by what what you can't get a you can't really see, and then you discover it's a hindrance. I had one retreat where you know I was in Burma, and so at this point in my life, I'd heard a number of talks on the hindrances. And I'd been practicing for a few months, and then at some point, I remembered these friends of mine. They'd gone to India. They'd practiced with this master. Uh, they'd laughed with this master, and in that, had somehow got it. And I, you know, as I this came to mind, I didn't know what "got it" meant, but whatever it was, I wanted it. I didn't have it, and, you know, my practice was just feeling miserable. I, you know, this was happening day after day over, over a period of time. And so, you know, here I was sitting in my misery and remembering my friends that got it. And, you know, I am thinking, what am I doing? You know, my first thought was, well, why don't I leave Burma and go to India? <laughs> but, but then, you know, as I was sitting there, I thought, okay, what's my problem? What is my problem? And so I just looked into my experience in that moment. And what did I see? Desire, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, doubt. And you know, in the scene of it, it was so freeing. It was like, "Oh, <laughs> the hindrances, you know, it didn't mean that I was a horrible person, doomed to a life of suffering, you know doomed to forever having to do therapy for the rest of my life. All I needed to do was recognize these mind states and to you know, really be present with them, to see the effects of these states of mind. And out of that, they get robbed of their power. In the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha talks about, in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, he talks about the hindrances in a way that really allows us to take these you know, states of mind that create so much suffering, that actually hinder the mind from clear seeing, and teaches us to use these very states of mind as an object of mindfulness as to something we can turn our attention to and really begin to see, to feel how they move, to know what, what strengthens them, to know under what conditions they become diminished. And out of this, to be able to see how we can prevent their arising through wise attention. And I I think this is really quite good news because it means that when these these experiences are present this is the very ground upon which liberation can happen even though it is on one hand something that obstructs the mind but it just needs to be understood as it is. So for me, this is very good news, because these mind states can be frequent visitors. And learning about them, hearing about them, the purpose in speaking about them is to really help us depersonalize these mind states. Because we tend to create whole identity views out of their arising. You know, when there is a predominance of aversion, we can create this view of self that is this angry, aversive being. And then, you know, something else happens in our experience and we respond with aversion and this just compounds this... View of self that is being clung to, and it becomes really solid, it feels really real, and it's really just a passing mind state. So, tonight I'm just going to be speaking about the first two um, that of sensual desire and aversion. So sensual desire, Mm. where the mind starts looking to pleasant, pleasing experience, seeking happiness through having these pleasant experiences. You know, whether it's a pleasant sight, sound, touch, whether it's a pleasant mind state, a pleasant thought, um, hmm. we find with this that there can become just this unquenchable thirst for pleasant experience, a burning desire. There can be lust. You know, where there can be, you know, the seeking of sexual fulfillment, a sense of union. There's just this place in the mind where it's looking for some aspect to bring about a sense of unity and wholeness. Coming on retreat, you know, there is not so many objects of Sensual fulfillment, you know, that we've just let go of so much in the outer world. And so, a common experience we have in coming on retreat is that what the, this form of desire that usually gets dispersed in our life amongst many objects in a day, many different moments of satisfying this urge for sensual fulfillment. Because there's not so many different experiences, we can find that our the objects of our desire become huge, that you know, food on retreat can play such a major role, you know, that you can sit, you know, for the hour before lunch thinking about nothing but food and you know, just or you're out walking, and the 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 uh, an aroma from the kitchen comes down the hallway, and it's just like, or oh. uh, you know, fantasies of food. I, I remember sitting, and I had an image, and it was only of rice, but you know, I, the rice appeared in my mind, and I actually chomped on it, you know, just like. Harr! <laughs> We begin to see just that allure in the mind. And this is really helpful because, you know, it can be so dispersed in life that we don't actually see what's happening there. We don't see this enchantment. This enchantment is something that Winnie the Pooh had some understanding of. He talked about how there was a moment before eating honey that was even better than when you do. But he didn't know what that was. And you know, it's like with sensual desire, there can be this moment where it promises happiness. Ah. And you know, we just taste of that. And then, oh, the mind goes for it. This is a teaching from Tangpulu Sayadaw who was a Burmese forest monk. This is from his teachings on desire. He says, The more we get, the more we want. Greed is like a wild animal. If you feed a wild animal, you cannot drive him away. Even though you try to drive him away with sticks and stones, he will not go away. So it is with greed. If we feed sensual pleasures to the wild animal of greed, it will never go away it will become stronger and stronger. This teaching really resonated with my own experience. One in just kind of the force of greed, the strength of greed, how it is like a wild animal. And, you know, we see it in these moments on retreat when it really rears its head, uh, we see the strength and tenacity with which it comes. I remember on one retreat um, i would i had you know some bars of chocolate, and after lunch i 'd go to my room and i 'd have one piece of chocolate and was quite disciplined with this and Then one day, I sat down and with my little piece of chocolate bar in front of me, broke off one piece. And ate it. And then was like, oh, that was so good. Let's just have one more. And I've got to say that, you know, for me with chocolate, that thought arises. I don't always go for it, but that, I just can't eat chocolate without having that thought. You know, there's just something in the flavor of chocolate that's so pleasing. So, anyhow, on this day, it was like, oh, come on, just have one more piece. So had another piece. And, you know, that piece led to, you know, just one more, another piece. And I'm eating this piece, you know, it's a big bar of chocolate, and eating it away segment by segment. And then, you know, it was like, ah, what is going on here? And it was just the scene, how this force of desire was so strong, so compelling and so believable that this chocolate was going to bring happiness. And it, it, it really stopped me in my tracks. And actually it was so strong that suddenly the scene of desire became so empty. It completely lost its power when it was just looked at with mindfulness. I also really resonate with this teaching from Tumpalu Sayada around um, greed being like a wild animal because I have observed in animals just, you know, they, they don't monitor greed. As we grow up in our lives, we don't let that force of greed show in quite the same way. But, you know, if we really acted out what was in the mind, we would see just... You know, it is like a wild animal. You know, I see um, in dogs, uh, there was a a dog that I was very close to, his name was Max. And Max, he is a being of great metta, or loving kindness, but he also had strong desire. And he loved to play stick. Um, and when you would hold up a stick, his mind would just completely focus on that stick and he would just tremble as he looked at that stick and you know he'd th- throw the stick and he'd go for it and then you know you get the stick again and the whole experience would repeat itself but and it was like watching him was a way of seeing what desire is like when it's present in the mind you know the mind fixate Everything else disappears. That desire becomes the center of the universe. I want, I need, and don't anybody get in my way. Now, it can be really strong. It causes a lot of harm in the world. You know, this force, people being run by this greed... No, and unfortunately, we live in a society that actually nurtures this. Our economic system is based upon our needing more and more and more. Unfortunately, the world, the planet, isn't set up to go with that. You know, we live on a planet of limited resources, and it can't sustain this level of unchecked wanting it's really in our se- essential that we learn to recognize this state and not be run by it And in our own experience we've probably all seen the different levels where we can have obsessive passions about things. Addictive cravings in our lives. Or just a quieter sense of identification. This becomes evident as we practice. Just really Notice the simple ways the mind is attracted to pleasant experience. Sitting down on the cushion. You know? Get it just right. The perfect temperature. Oh, I'm a little warm taking this off. Trying to find the posture where there's no unpleasant sensations. At times, really trying to manipulate the mind to be in a pleasant state. We try to fabricate pleasant experience. You know, and it's, it can just be sitting down and being seduced by pleasantness and not seeing it. I remember one time thinking that, oh, God, my practice is so easeful right now, so effortless. And then when there was a little bit closer examination, I saw that the mind was just sinking into hearing pleasant sounds, feeling pleasant sensations. And it can happen, you know, just, So simply, if we're not paying attention. This, this pull to the pleasant, it's so deeply rooted. And so, you know, in working with an aspect, with, working with desire, you know, on one level, it's like being able to recognize where we get enchanted with the promise of happiness, what's going to bring pleasure, It's really being aware also of what the mind does, and it's unguarded when it contacts pleasant experience. And there really is nothing wrong with pleasant experience. It's just this pull, this urge, that if we keep following, really leads to a superficial way of life where we don't see things as they are, and Becomes tiring and it never shows us the place of unsatisfactoriness out of which these desires are arising. And so, this is something key in that, you know, when we see that the mind is enchanted with desire, turn and look back into the mind. Where, what's happening? Where is it arising from? What's this sense that something else is needed in order to be happy? The Buddha likened uh, desire to um, being as if one is sitting in front of this pool of water and looking in to see one's reflection but when desire is present one looks into this water and sees just all these beautiful dyes of color but can't see one's own reflection and when desire is present and unrecognized we can't see the nature of experience because there is this enchantment this being mesmerized. In the world we find Strong tendencies where the, the, just the advertising of the world, the, the whole way the economy is set up, you know, that there's just this, this setting up of the consumer mind. You know, what we can get next, what's going to fulfill, the, where we can get our next hit from. And oh, this consumer mind is something that we can bring into our practice without realizing it. You know where we may want to have the best teachers. We may want to be close to our teachers, to be seen by our teachers, to be special to our teachers. We want to go to the best center to practice in. We want to hear the teachings in a way that is pleasing to our ears. And I think this is really important because when we have this kind of idea about the Dhamma, we aren't going to be hearing Dhamma that actually has the power to shake us out of our complacency. We want to only hear what sounds good, what sounds nice, which kind of supports us in our delusion. And, you know, we can find that if we come. To practice with the consumer mentality, that, you know, if our teacher suddenly shows signs of being human, not our teacher, we'll go elsewhere. If we start hearing Dhamma in a way that challenges our beliefs, we move on to the next place. You know, and there's no deepening, you know, there's nothing that's going to wake us up. We have to really make sure. We have to be alert to this subtle form of desire that will just keep us comfortable in that which is pleasing. So, you know, just pay attention. Look and see. It, being here, we're practicing in the Deva realms, you know, in a sense that there, it's quite amazing conditions Watching that you just don't set up a really nice practice. You know, in being a teacher here, that's actually one of my greatest fears that people will just come here and have a nice time. It won't change our lives, it will be a hindrance. So be alert. Watch. Notice if you're setting up a practice that is based in pleasant experience. You know, one of the ways to watch is, is to notice when you move from sitting to walking, walking to sitting. Be conscious right there. Because often there's some unpleasant experience and without recognizing it, mind says, oh, Let's walk because there's some promise of happiness in that, or some promise in a cup of tea. Notice what's moving you. Another aspect that we can find that just, you know, from growing up in the culture that we have is that we get addicted to intensity. And we bring that into our practice. And so we get addicted to the highs. We always want to be on the mountaintop. We want to have the peak experience. And we're clamoring for the peak experience. And our whole practice is fueled by this wanting. you know, And that you know, trying to concentrate the mind, to get more deeply concentrated so that there will be these moments of profound calmness or moments of deep insight. Now, wanting to be on the top of the mountain, it's just another form of delusion. Or we find in the addiction to the intensity, even the valleys, the, you know, it's like we need something in order to feel awake. And so, at times, our wanting can be, we don't care whether it's a, a peak experience or the bottom. We just want something to feel awake. You know, and it comes out of this, uh, this need to define ourselves by experience, that need for something to be whole. Another form of desire we encounter in being here is thoughts about the Dhamma. You know, we may have moments of profound insight. Something is seen in a whole new way. But then it becomes a proliferation, a thinking about. You know, I know that my best Dharma talks have been probably given sitting on the cushion. As I expound my wisdom, <laughs> it's just the mind getting seduced into thought. You know, and it happens like after a moment of insight, something is seen, understood in a new way. But then, oh, rather than continuing to realize the Dhamma, we get seduced by the thinking mind. These desires can seem very small, and of little consequence, but it's needing to see that as we keep fulfilling these desire, it's really planting the seeds for that to arise in the future. And what can start out as a simple small desire can actually move into you know full on greed that can drive the world in really unwholesome ways I had quite a strong teaching around desire once and this happened at a time when I had been in a relationship and the relationship ended and it wasn't on my side that the relationship was ending. The other person had decided it was enough and it was quite devastating to me. There was a lot of attachment and I kept going back to this person, checking it out no, <laughs> it was finished on their part. And, you know, but the, this, you know, wanting was still in my mind. And at this time, I was living in a tent. And one day I'd had a really hard, challenging day, really up against this wanting. And then I went home that night and I got into bed. And I laid down, and then suddenly there was this scurry of little feet into the tent and came right up beside my head where there happened to be a pile of nuts and raisins. And unlike me, this little mouse was very happy because it found this feast But there I was, you know, after having had, you know, it wasn't just a horrendous day. It was several days of just being in the grips of this attachment. And so um, I had an almost sleepless night that night. You know, just, you know, I went from desire to aversion, you know, from feeling uh, just massive aversion. And then, you know, the the next day got up, went to work, just exhausted. I got home that night and I thought, no way, I'm not going through that again. So I cleaned up that pile of nuts and raisins. I cleaned up every speck, what I thought was the scent of those nuts and raisins. And then happily got into my bed. I was going to sleep. And sure enough, a few minutes later, there's the scurry of feet. And I think it's all right. The mouse is going to see no raisins, and we'll be all right. So anyhow, the mouse comes in, sure enough, goes to the spot, nothing there. And then I think, okay, I'm going to just shoo him out, him or her, whoever it is, shoo out the mouse. And then I thought, okay, I'm really going to sleep tonight. I did up the zipper super tight. No way the mouse could get in and get back in bed and think, whew, that's over. And then... I may have just drifted off to sleep, I can't remember. And then I hear this mouse. This mouse is going crazy. The mouse started running circles around the tent. And this went on, you know, it was one o'clock, two o'clock. And then at some point in the night, the mouse started trying to run up the sides of the tent. And at this point, I'm just screaming inside, And I think, that mouse is so stupid. It's been in here, it's seen there's nothing there, and it's going crazy. And then suddenly I realized, I'm just like this mouse. I was in a relationship, it was pleasing, there was something satisfying, conditions changed, it's gone. But there I was, going crazy, trying to get back that which was gone. Soon as I realized that, I fell into a deep sleep and I never heard from the mouse again. (laughs) So looking in our own experience. Letting desire be a teacher. Learn from it. Learn of its nature. Be present to it. Feel it. You know, we start to, when we really feel desire, we're not feeling the enchantment because it's so painful, this place of unsatisfactoriness, this craving, wanting. It starts, you know, it doesn't have that same pull. And we really begin to see that if there's sustained mindfulness, the mind doesn't forget and it doesn't get enchanted by desire. The Buddha likened to being free of desire as someone who is free of death. No, it's like when we are captivated by desire, we're in bondage to that. But when we're free, the mind isn't seduced by the desire. There's a freedom there. We're no longer in debt. Each of the hindrances has a jhanic factor, and you know the jhanic states are are where the mind has great stability. It's protected. it doesn't fall prey to the hindrances. And so the jhanic factor that really counterbalances desire is that of ikagata or one-pointedness, or non-distraction. You now when we can fully be with experience, letting the mind rest with experience, it's it's very similar to how you know for only half talking to somebody, or half listening to somebody who's speaking to us, the mind will wander away. It will get caught in distraction, and if we're wholly, fully present, there is no distraction. And so it's like unifying the mind with experience. This helps to uh, be a counterbalance to that of desire. The next of the hindrances is that of aversion, which at times can be so strong it's in the form of hatred, anger, ill will. It's where there's a contractedness, a recoiling, a pulling away from experience. You know, it too can be really based in a, a misperception of what will bring happiness And we think that we need to get rid of something in order to be happy. We feel like in order to make ourselves safe, that we need to separate from some aspect of experience. Subtler forms of aversion can be disappointment, dejection, levels of anxiety and sometimes you know it can be despair it's like we've recoiled from experience an energy of pulling away aversion really in, reinforces the perception of duality aversion is quite painful you know with desire greed, we can get seduced, enchanted, there's some promise. Usually with aversion, the suffering in it is much easier to see, that it's more apparent. And we can find that aversion can manifest in different ways. You know, one can be a real kind of active voice in the mind, and it's like a striking out The anger that strikes out, you know, and even sitting in silence, that striking out happens. You know, it's not that we may actually strike out, but the mind lashes out. And aversion arises, there's some unpleasant experience, and somebody is to blame for it. You know, and there can be such an intense justification of this, uh, a real self-righteousness around it. uh, there, there can be just, you know, a wanting to annihilate something in our experience. And really that sense of pushing away, which is really brutal. You know, it can, There can be such a brutality in the mind with aversion. A person who has, is experiencing aversion is likened to one who is ill and there's nothing that tastes good. And, you know, we probably know this from these days when there is this proliferation of aversion. Uh, It's like you get out of bed on the wrong side. It doesn't matter what happens. It stinks. You know, and it it just gets perpetuated and and nothing. You know, even chocolate doesn't taste good on these days. The Buddha gave one he's one interesting example of how what happens with anger. He described anger with its poisoned source and fevered climax, murderously sweet. There is a seduction that can happen with this anger. You know where there is the righteousness. You know, there's some some enhancing quality that's there that helps one to feel puffed up, that sense of rightness. But when we look, we see its poisoned source, the place from which it's arising. And our exploration of aversion in our practice is to notice when anger is present and if it's fed what the state of mind is like. It's so painful when we're identified with it. It's such a place of immense suffering. And, you know, if we just keep feeding the thoughts of aversion it compounds, strengthens, becomes solid and just locked into a painful perception of reality. The other side of aversion, which, you know, there's the striking out, But there's also a part of aversion that can be more fear-based where fear has a different effect where it tends to stop things. There's a tendency when fear is present to freeze. uh, And it too is very painful. And fear and aversion... You know, when their driving forces in our lives are going to lead us into greater suffering. And fear really keeps us from honoring our nobility of heart, from really getting in touch with true wisdom, because there's this tendency to freeze. And you know we find that fear often keeps us living in the realms of what feels comfortable, safe, not pushing any edges, not going to any place where fear is going to arise. No, and retreat is a wonderful place to explore fear and the effects in the mind. And there can be very simple ways that we'll encounter fear on retreat. It can be fear of mind states, different states of mind that arise Some of us may have strong habits of self-hatred and become really fearful of it, afraid that we'll get caught in it. And it can become really heavy and the mind gets very uh, frozen in that state. There can be fear of other yogis, Fear in the dining room of people looking at us. It's amazing how we're doing this practice here and there's there's this whole inward turning, and yet people in the dining room can experience a a sense of, um, you know, there's just a sense as if everybody in the whole dining room is looking at us. You know, this. Whole contraction around this uh, this perception of how others are seeing us can bring up very strong fear. The fear can happen in relationship to interviews. You know, it often takes us back to uh, childhood incidents of that may have evoked some form of fear, and you know, this is all just ways to see fear learning to let this aspect of the hindrances be seen as it is can we know it can we recognize it this recognition just is a way of bringing it in to the light of awareness and accepting I I know Rebecca spoke the other day about how recognition, acceptance, uh, um, investigation leads to non-identification, this acronym RAIN. This is what's so important in working with the hindrances. Recognize, accept, be interested. This is what will help to free the mind. So that we aren't bound, caught, identified in these states, many of us find just with fear, that we can have such a strong desire for control, and you know, as we practice and begin to touch into the uncontrollability of experience it can bring up this fear. If we don't recognize this fear, our practice can't deepen. Body pain is another place we can work with both aversion and fear. You know, that it's not uncommon that when unpleasant sensation arises in the body, reaction in the mind. Be aware of that aversion. Be aware of that reactivity. And notice if it's really based in fear. Fear of what may come to be. You know, so often we have an experience and then become fearful that it's going to last forever. We project it into the future and it's really too much, too much to carry in this moment. So noticing all of the different forms of aversion, You know, from just that subtle, not liking of experience, just a slight recoiling, wanting to get rid of, not to see, wanting to suppress, to the full-blown anger, the rage, the hatred. Being honest with that, you know, it can be so scary. To think of opening to hatred, the fear that will be overwhelmed by it, consumed by it. But it's through our practice we begin to see this is a conditioned state. This conditioned state has certain qualities, texture, feel. But this state is impermanent. It's just born out of conditions. It's not the truth of who we are. If we learn to have mindfulness as the refuge, we're not consumed by it. Turning to this refuge of awareness, mindfulness, it will help us to be with our deepest suffering. through the exploration of aversion, we really begin to see the poison of it. The pain of it. And in the seeing of that, there's a natural letting go. I'd like to share a teaching from Pema Chodron. Probably most of you have heard of her. She's a, a Western Tibetan teacher. She actually has a center up in Nova Scotia. Uh, she, she is able to put the Dhamma in very simple, practical terms. And so that she says, We shield our heart with an armor woven out of very old habits of pushing away pain and grasping at pleasure. When we begin to breathe in the pain instead of pushing it away, we begin to open our hearts to what's unwanted. When we relate directly in this way to the unwanted areas of our lives, there arises, uh, (laughs) the airless room of our egos begin to be ventilated. We want to ventilate this inner space. We want to breathe some room into it and mindfulness brings the spaciousness to it. The jhanic factor that counterbalances aversion is that of pity or joyful interest. When we're interested in experience it opens our mind with joy, awe, wonder. Emily Dickinson says, To live is so startling, there is little time for anything else. If we notice that there's a predominance of aversion, look to interest. This quality of interest to whatever is there. No, it doesn't have to be a big experience. Just bringing interest, non-analytical investigation. So these first of the hindrances: desire and aversion. Recognizing, looking, how they play out. And it's just such a great arena on, on retreat to explore, to see. See all the different garden varieties. You know, without taking them to mean you're a bad meditator, you're no good, you're not doing it right. Just see these states for what they are. and to know the forces of these states are strong the habits are so strong but we don't need to feel defeated by that just steady continuity willingness of heart moment by moment just doing the best that we can and really resting in that letting it be enough knowing knowing that the work that we're doing is to fully understand and uproot these forces so that they are not the forces driving our lives. But it comes through understanding, not suppression, denial, avoidance. One of my teachers, Sayada Utejaniya, wrote a little booklet Maybe many of you have seen in the library. It's called, Don't Look Down on the Defilements or They Will Laugh at You. And that's what happens if we don't notice these defilements in the mind. They laugh, they get their way, they run amok. But with that willingness and courageousness of heart to meet them, they lose their power. So let's just sit for a moment. May all beings come to know a mind free of desire and aversion. So closing with the chanting of the Reflections on the Sharing of Blessings.